Welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast. My name is Garth Oliver, and I'm your host as we continue our journey through the pages of Scripture tracking the story that unfolds there. In today's episode, we're going to look at Isaiah 55 and Yahweh's promise of a new covenant with the people of Judah as he invites them to return to him and be reconciled without cost. A couple of notes here at the beginning, particularly for those who uh, are not longtime listeners to the podcast, if there's some new listeners here. Uh, the translation that I typically read from, that I always use unless I uh, mention something different, identify a different translation for some reason, is the New American Standard 95. And so if you want to follow along, that's what I'll be using. And the second thing here is is just a, a mention of the review that I do at the beginning of each podcast. And it takes us Oh, somewhere it's pushing up around 18 or 19 minutes uh, these days. I include this review in the beginning of every episode for the benefit of those who may not be have been listening from the very beginning so that they can get oriented to where we are in the story and plug in with what we're talking about. So if you find this review somewhat burdensome, then let me invite you to meet us about the 14-minute mark. That will still get you into the discussion early enough to review what we're talking about at Isaiah uh, and where we are in the book. Uh, but some, skip over maybe some of that that has uh, uh, become so familiar that you don't really feel like you need it. For the rest of us, uh, let's review the key developments of the story and how they move the story forward. We'll begin with Adam and Eve, of course, who were created and commissioned to rule as God's representatives. They enjoyed a fully functional relationship with him, including all the blessings he provided to them as his representatives. But in spite of all these blessings, the serpent was able to stir up discontentment in them. He convinced the woman to pursue her own ideas of good and evil independent of God. This was not only an explicit rejection of God's rule, it was also a rejection of her unique role in this creation. Now, this is where the man should have stepped in and led, and through that leadership, subdued the serpent, protected the woman. But he didn't do that. He relinquished leadership to her, following her as she followed the serpent. And so the man failed in his first opportunity to rule and subdue as God's representative. And although man has never lived up to his created purpose, it remains as God's express purpose for him. Whether or not man will ever fulfill this purpose remains the driving question of the story. Now, in this failure, he brought a curse upon the ground that he was supposed to care for and protect. He'd been formed from it, now he's doomed to return to it. And instead of the bounty that it had produced for him in the garden, it's going to now yield thorns and thistles. This is his new reality under the curse. But Yahweh wasn't content to leave him there and has been acting ever since to restore mankind to what he created him for. He wants man to enjoy the blessing that goes with living in alignment with him rather than having to live under this curse. And he started this restoration in the garden. Genesis 3.15, he promised the woman that one of her seed would ultimately rule and crush the head of the enemy. In the following verse, he says that the woman will desire this man and he must rule over her. Now, while this statement seemed unclear at the time, the development of this promise is one of the main thrusts that drives the story forward. And as the story moves forward, man's persistent in his commitment to live independent of God, pursuing life on his own terms right up through Noah's day. Noah's the rare exception. He was the lone seed of the woman, the one who had aligned himself with God in submission to him. And this wholesale determination by everyone else to live life on their own terms produced an earth that was filled with violence. In response to this persistent defiance, Yahweh sends judgment, wiping out mankind in the flood. Only Noah and his seed are preserved in the ark. 
And upon their exit from the ark, Yahweh makes a covenant with them. This is the covenant of the rainbow, or sometimes we refer to it as the Noahic covenant. And in this covenant, he promises to never again destroy mankind with a flood. This is a major development in that it formalizes Yahweh's determination to respond to man with mercy. He knows that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and if he doesn't act in mercy, man's never going to survive. Now, in connection with the covenant of the rainbow, Yahweh recommissions Noah and his sons. This commission echoes back to the original commission of Adam with some significant additions. He tells them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, which is exactly what he said to Adam back when he created him. But dominion over the animals is stated a bit differently. Yahweh says that he has given all the creatures into the hand of Noah and his sons, meaning that he's given Noah and his sons authority over the animals. So while that's stated differently, it's essentially the same as what he told Adam. But it's in connection to this dominion that one of these additions appears. See, not only is man to rule over the creatures, but every living thing is given to him for food, just as Yahweh had previously given him the green plants for food. The only restriction is that he's not to eat the blood of the animal because that's tied to its life. To eat its blood would be to eat its life, and that is forbidden. Now, this notion that the blood of animals is set apart or sacred leads to another new element that's even more significant, and that is that any man or animal who spills the lifeblood of a man is to forfeit his own lifeblood at the hands of man. Stated reason for this is because man was created in the image of God. To kill a man is to kill one who was created to represent God. But the placement of this in the development of the story reveals something else. See, I don't think Yahweh randomly throws in the death penalty for murder. He establishes this law because of the situation that brought about the flood. We're told that the earth was filled with violence, which is, I think, another way of saying that murder was rampant. And so now, with the fresh start after the flood, that act carries the death penalty. However, in spite of the fresh start, by the time we get to Babel, somewhere between 100 and 300 years later, man is again united in his defiance of God's commission and purpose for him. Yahweh responds to this defiance by confusing his languages and dividing him into nations, which he then gives over to the dominion of Satan and the demons who followed him in rebellion against Yahweh. The best that the people of these nations, who come to be known as Gentiles, the best that they can hope for is a life lived under the curse. But that doesn't mean Yahweh's giving up on his determination to bring blessing to all these nations. He chooses a man named Abraham and offers him a promise in the form of a covenant. This is the Abrahamic covenant, and we summarized it with three main points. First, Abraham's seed, his descendants, will become a new nation distinct from all the nations that were created at Babel. And this nation will exist in relationship with God, which is a restoration of the relationship that Yahweh originally created man for. This nation, secondly, will possess the land promised to Abraham by Yahweh. And thirdly, they're going to hold a special status as the promise holder of blessing. In other words, it's going to be through Abraham's seed that God is going to bring the promised blessing that the Gentiles as a whole have universally rejected throughout the story. Now, this covenant is an extension of the promise made to the woman in the garden, and it provides the framework through which Yahweh will work out his purpose of restoring man to what he created him to be and enable man to enjoy the blessing Yahweh offers him. As the story unfolds, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, is renamed Israel, and he has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Because of a famine, they go down to Egypt where they're enslaved and grow into a people that's at least 2 million strong. 
And then after 400 years, Yahweh raises up Moses, who brings them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, where Yahweh enters into the Mosaic Covenant with them, establishing the relationship that was a part of his covenant with Abraham. Yahweh is now living among his people, that is the nation of Israel, in a functional relationship. And it's important to understand how this covenant relates to the Abrahamic covenant. And I would say that it's subordinate to it in that it comes after the Abrahamic covenant and does not invalidate or replace it, but rather supplements it. And the second point then is the supplemental nature. It's supplemental in that it provides the means through which Abraham's seed will enjoy the relationship that was promised in the Abrahamic covenant. Under this Mosaic covenant, Yahweh requires the people of Israel to be completely devoted to him with all their hearts, spelling out in great detail what that devotion is going to look like. If they'll do this, he will bless them as a nation in the land he promised them. And specifically, this means that they will be chief among all the nations and will experience abundant fertility, fertility in their crops and herds, and fertility in their own offspring. And in this, they'll manifest to the other nations the glory of living under Yahweh's blessing. And it's here that we recognize another distinction between the Mosaic and Abrahamic covenants. And that is that the Mosaic covenant's conditional. Israel would experience either blessing or cursing depending on whether they obeyed or not. The Abrahamic covenant, by contrast, is unconditional. Having established the covenant with Abraham, Yahweh will make Israel into a nation through whom he brings blessing to all the Gentile nations. Now, before they get into the land, Moses is replaced by Joshua, who actually leads them in to begin to take possession of the land. However, once they get there, they repeatedly fail to live up to their covenant responsibilities in this relationship with Yahweh. Every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. In other words, they're still living under the deception of the serpent that started all the way back in the garden. And in the book of Judges, we're introduced to the solution. That is, they're going to need a king, someone who, through his leadership, is going to turn their hearts back toward Yahweh. Now, as we follow the story, Israel had come to a similar conclusion, at least in the fact that they wanted a king. But the king they want is a king like all the other nations have, and so God gives them that first to show them the folly of their desire. He gives them a man named Saul. But because Saul is independent and self-willed, in other words, he's doing what's right in his own eyes, Yahweh doesn't allow him to retain the throne and ultimately kills him and replaces him with David. David is the king they need. He's a man after God's own heart who's able to turn Israel's heart back toward Yahweh so that they were no longer doing what was right in their own eyes. As a result of David's faithfulness in shepherding Israel, Yahweh makes a covenant with him, which is, of course, called the Davidic covenant. And this is an extension of the Abrahamic covenant, providing important details about the seed of the woman who will come and rule. We summarize this with four main points. The first is that Yahweh will make David's name great. Second, Yahweh will establish Israel in the land so that they will dwell securely there. That is, their nation will never be overthrown. And this ties in with the third element of the promise, and that is that Yahweh will establish a dynasty in which David's seed will rule over this securely established kingdom. In other words, the house of David will be an eternal dynasty ruling over an eternal house of Israel. And then fourthly, David's seed will build a house for Yahweh's name. Now, David is succeeded on the throne of Israel by Solomon, his immediate seed, who begins to fulfill elements of the Davidic covenant. However, after starting strong, Solomon doesn't finish very well. Rather than loving God, Solomon loves women who turn his heart away from Yahweh to worship the gods of the surrounding nations from which they came. 
So, in keeping with terms of the Davidic covenant, Yahweh disciplines the house of David, which results in a divided kingdom. The line of David continues to rule over Judah and Benjamin, and make up the southern kingdom is known as the kingdom of Judah. The other ten tribes who rebelled against the house of David formed the northern kingdom, which from this point all the way up until the exile, it's what's called the kingdom of Israel. So we track the story through the divided kingdom. We find that all of the kings of the northern kingdom were evil, leading Israel away from Yahweh, worshiping golden calves as the God who brought them out of Egypt. Their persistent refusal to worship Yahweh brought upon them the full force of the curses promised in Deuteronomy. Specifically, what this means is that Yahweh brought against them the Assyrian Empire, who crushed them and carried most of the people into captivity, scattering them among the other regions of the Assyrian Empire. This happened in 722 BC. Unfortunately, the southern kingdom, Judah, chose a path not all that different from the northern kingdom. And in spite of reforms by kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, Judah's repeated spiritual adultery brought them under the curses of the covenant as well. They were crushed and led into exile by the Babylonians who reduced Jerusalem to rubble in 586 B.C. But as we closed out the book of Kings, we were reminded that the curses of Deuteronomy weren't final, and Yahweh's promise to David still stands. One of his seed will reign over Israel, firmly established in the land promised to Abraham. The kingdom of this promised seed will be an eternal kingdom, which will never be conquered. So now we've turned our attention to the prophets who ministered throughout the period of the divided kingdom. We've looked at Jonah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Micah. And now we're working our way through Isaiah, who was ministering at roughly the same time as these other prophets. At its broadest level, this book is composed of two major prophetic sections separated by a historical narrative. In the first prophetic section, we find that in spite of Yahweh's patient care and provision, the people of Israel and Judah are simply going through the motions in their relationship with Yahweh. Their hearts are turned away, and they're pursuing life independent of Him and all He offers them. And they've persisted in this independence throughout the divided kingdom, although Yahweh's discipline of them has become increasingly severe. Isaiah warns them that this persistence is short-sighted. The story's unfolding according to Yahweh's long-established plan. He's in control. The schemes of men and nations ultimately don't matter because they don't take his plans into account, and his plans determine the course of the story and the destiny of all men. And those plans culminate in the day of Yahweh when Christ will return, pour out God's judgment on all the nations of the earth who oppose him, and take his place as the king who will establish his kingdom on earth. This kingdom will be a kingdom of perfect justice, righteousness, and peace where the weak and vulnerable will be protected and the wicked will be destroyed. As a result of Christ's reign, harmony will be restored among all living creatures, and the Gentile nations will be drawn to him so that he might teach them his ways. Given all of these coming developments, Yahweh's people should be looking to Yahweh, not these surrounding nations, for their provision and protection. And then in the second unit of the book, which was the historical unit, the perspective shifted. Prophecies made by Isaiah in the first section of the book were fulfilled in very concrete, literal ways. And these historical events provided compelling evidence of the reliability of all that was revealed in the first unit of the book, including the many elements which still await future fulfillment. Now we've moved into the second prophetic unit of the book. And this unit opens in Isaiah 40 with a voice calling to prepare a highway for the coming of Yahweh. Isaiah is, in effect, urging the people of Jerusalem to act in anticipation of this coming of Yahweh, at which time His glory will be revealed. 
As Isaiah continues, he presents the incomparable nature of this God, Yahweh. There's no one else like him, no one else who is worthy of worship or fear, no other God, no man, and no nation. Only Yahweh is able to reveal the things that are to come. And he's able to do this because he's the one who's going to cause them to occur. He's going to bring them about. Those people of Israel who live in anticipation of his arrival are promised that they will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. He's chosen them as his servant, and unlike the rest of the peoples of the earth, they don't need to fear. In due time, all who oppose them will be destroyed, but those who wait upon him will be renewed and strengthened. Of course, the reason he's making this argument is because his people haven't been waiting on him. They've not embraced their role as his servant. Instead, they've chosen to follow after these other nations, even to the point of worshiping the idols of these other nations, idols which are nothing more than man-made objects. So Yahweh lays out his argument as something of a court case. Yahweh, through Isaiah, presents as the plaintiff in the case, and Yahweh's work in creation and his control of the events of history demonstrate his supreme and incomparable nature. This evidence is not static. In other words, he continues to demonstrate his control of events by continuing to reveal what he's going to do before the events occur. Now, the defendants in this case are the idolaters, and he compels them to defend their worship of their idols with evidence. Through the prosecution of the case, these idols are shown to be nothing more than mere objects crafted by man from firewood. Far from being able to deliver man from his troubles, these idols, in fact, are inanimate. In other words, they're completely dependent on man for their own placement and position. They can't even stand themselves up, and so the notion that they could deliver those devoted to them is just ridiculous. And the point of all of this is to establish who is worthy of worship. In worshiping these idols, Yahweh's people are giving the worship and devotion due to the supreme and incomparable God, Yahweh, to these idols. And this, Yahweh's not going to allow to stand. And so here's what he's going to do. In the near term, the people of Israel are going to be humiliated for their idolatry. And this is going to render them both blind and deaf to all that is true and real. But in the long term, Yahweh is going to do something new. He's not going to abandon his people. He's going to redeem them and restore their sight and their hearing in order that they might return to him and come to believe and know him. He's going to do this through another servant that he raises up. We learn about this servant through a series of four servant songs spread through chapters 42 through 53 of Isaiah. As we move through the description of him, we came to recognize this servant as the seed of David, in other words, the Messiah. He's going to establish justice as a king, not only in Israel, but in all the earth. And yet, he's going to do this with gentleness and humility. He'll also be a light to the nations. Through him, Yahweh will manifest his glory to the nations and receive the worship due exclusively to him. As he carries out his mission, he will face such intense opposition that it's going to look like he's failed. He's going to be beaten, abused, and humiliated. And as men observe his humiliation, they're going to assume that his suffering is deserved, that he's under Yahweh's judgment for his sin. So he will be abhorred and despised. And as it turns out, he is under God's judgment, suffering for sin. But it's not for his sin. He's suffering for the sins of Israel and indeed for the sins of the whole world. He willingly presents himself as a guilt offering to atone and make restitution for sin, for all of it. And throughout his suffering, he sets his face like flint toward fulfilling the mission given him. He doesn't waver. He doesn't cry out or complain. 
And because of his humble obedience, he will indeed be exalted above the kings and princes of the earth. It will be because of all that he suffers that he's exalted as the king who will establish justice and righteousness on the earth. Then, in the last episode, we saw what that restoration will look like when we looked at Isaiah 54. And there, Isaiah returns to the image of Israel as the wife who is both barren and rejected by her husband. In this future restoration, her barrenness is going to be replaced by an unprecedented abundance of offspring through faith. And her shame, which is the result of her rejection, will be replaced by Yahweh's compassionate restoration of her to himself. So what does this mean in practical terms? Well, it means that in this restoration, Yahweh's going to replace the upheaval of Judah's current situation with stability and security and abundance and beauty as her descendants walk in Yahweh's wisdom. And so now in today's episode, we move into chapter 55, where Yahweh through Isaiah turns his attention to Judah and how they should respond to this message of restoration. And he begins with an invitation. He says in 55.1, Ho, everyone who thirst, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. All right, so when we put the verbs, all the verbs of verse 1 together that make up this invitation, we see that the invitation is to come, buy and eat all of those things that were essential for sustaining life, water, wine, milk, and bread. But note that although the verb buy is used, the clear invitation is to buy without cost and without money. Although all these things had value, the people of Judah would be able to acquire them without any cost to themselves. As we move into verse 2, we find this offer juxtaposed over against what the people of Judah were doing at the time. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? So, based on what we know about Judah, how are they spending money for what is not bread and wages for what does not satisfy? Well, we know that they're seeking secure life, which is represented by the water, the wine, the milk, and the bread, through their own efforts independent of Yahweh. And as we've looked at uh, the story of Israel, we see that this is going on at various levels. At the national level, it's manifested in their insistence on seeking national security through treaties with other nations rather than simply trusting Yahweh to protect them. And then within their culture, it's reflected in things like their reliance on fraud and the perversion of justice to steal from the less powerful and vulnerable among them. At the core, all of these things reflect a determination to choose for themselves what is good and evil. This is what's meant by spending money for what is not bread and wages for what does not satisfy. For all their striving, they're not finding the life they seek. The treaties don't work, and the wealth that they accumulate through their schemes doesn't satisfy them. Their independence and self-will, they're not effective. And so he asks them, why do you keep doing these things that don't work? And he follows this within what they should do. He says, again, listen carefully to me. In other words, stop living life on your own terms. Listen carefully to me. When you do, you will eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. See, if you do this, you'll not just have enough food to eat, but good food, and you'll be able to enjoy it in abundance. Now, this is not new information to them. 
This is the essence of the message of Deuteronomy, the Mosaic Covenant that the people of Judah have been hearing for the last 800 years, yet they persist in these ways. He continues in verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me. Listen, again, there it is, listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. See, when they turned from their own ways to listen to Yahweh, He's promising to make an everlasting covenant with them. Now note that this is everlasting, an everlasting covenant, which is another way of saying unconditional. There's not going to be anything that's going to abrogate it. And as he describes the covenant, he links it with the covenant he made with David. And I think the idea is that that he's communicating here is that Yahweh is going to make this covenant with the people of Judah according to the faithfulness and loving kindness with which he made the covenant with David. In other words, Yahweh is promising another covenant with his people, and this covenant is going to be in accordance with the covenant of David. And I think by that he means that it will be through this new covenant that he's going to fulfill the Davidic covenant. Now, if you remember in the review that we mentioned the Davidic covenant, and we said that it was summarized by four main points, and I think the emphasis for our purposes here, the two middle points, the second and third point, are the ones that are particularly in focus because Yahweh says that he will establish Israel in the land so that they dwell securely there. That is, their nation is going to be never going to be overthrown. And then related to that is that David's seed is going to rule over this securely established kingdom as an eternal dynasty. And so to bring that down to what we're talking about here, I think what Yahweh is saying to Israel, to Judah at least, well, it's going to apply to Israel, but what he's saying to Judah is that it's going to be through this new covenant that he is going to fulfill the promise contained there in the covenant with David, and it's going to be an everlasting, unconditional covenant. And so the implication of this is that as a result of this new covenant, the people of Judah will enjoy the fulfillment of the promises made to David that we just mentioned in the Davidic covenant. He's going to explain this in greater detail in the next two verses. And so now remember, he's linked this new covenant that he's made with the covenant of David. And so now what he's going to do is talking about what he did with David, and then he's going to follow that up by showing how that's relevant to the people of Judah. So here's what he says in verse 4. Behold, talking about David, I've made him a witness to the peoples or to the nations, a leader and a commander for the nations or the peoples, right? And so he's setting David up here, not just talking about him in his impact to in, within Judah and Israel, but into the broader world. And so he says that he has used David as a witness to this broader world, to these nations. And he's a leader and commander. He rules over some of these other peoples and nations, right? And so if we want a clearer picture of this, we can go to Psalm 18, where David describes how God has exalted him among the nations. This is in verse 46. Yahweh lives... And blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who executes vengeance for me and subdues peoples, there's that same word, under me. I think he's referring to nations there. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. And of course, he's talking to Yahweh there. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Yahweh, And I will sing praises to your name. And so in this way, David is a witness to the nations. 
He gives great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. And so David recognizes that Yahweh's doing this. And of course, again, the point in Yahweh mentioning David here is to connect this new covenant he's going to make with Judah to the covenant he's made with David. And so he uses this review of the role he gave to David among the nations to remind Judah of the role that she will have among the nations, right? And so in Isaiah 55, verse 4, what we just read, speaking of David, I've made him a witness to the peoples and a leader of the nations and a leader and a commander for the nations, over the nations, right? Now he turns to uh, Judah. Behold, you will call or summon a nation that you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you, right? You will beckon this nation that you don't even know. They're not even significant enough for you to know them. And a nation that you don't know is going to run to you. Because Yahweh your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. And so the point of this is that just as Yahweh made David his ruler over the nations, so he will through this new covenant glorify Judah by making them the dominant nation among all the nations, which again, as I said a little bit ago, is a fulfillment of the second element of the Davidic covenant. They're going to be firmly established under David's rule or the rule of David's seed. Now, I think it's worth pausing here to to get a little clarity. And there's something specific that we need to clarify. Let's begin with this. The idea that Israel or Judah would be the dominant nation among all the nations, not a new concept. We saw it emphasized in Deuteronomy, but for the most part, we understood that Israel would attain that status through keeping the Mosaic Covenant, the law. Now, I say for the most part, because as I look back at Deuteronomy 30, there's a detail that was easy to miss. Listen to how the chapter begins. This is Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. And as a reminder, this comes after Uh, Yahweh through Moses has refuted all of the blessings for keeping the covenant and all the curses that will come if they don't keep the covenant. And so he says in Deuteronomy 30 verse 1, So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where Yahweh your God has banished you. Now before we go any further, let's just remember the implications of this. Right? So when all of these things have come upon you, that's the blessings and the cursings, and so there's the expectation that Israel is going to experience some blessing, and they're going to experience some cursing. They're going to fail, right? And they're going to fail so severely that they're now scattered among the nations. That was the ultimate uh, consequences of their failure, right? And so they're experiencing those things now. And then after this, Yahweh goes on to describe Israel's ultimate destiny, which involves their regathering from among the nations and their restoration to the land and the blessing that they're going to experience. And this blessing is going to include the humiliation of these other nations, her enemies, right? And so this notion that she is going to be chief among the nations and even recover and exalted among the nations is not new, right? Now, all of this is connected to Israel finally turning to Yahweh and loving her, him with all her heart and all her soul. He says explicitly, so that she might live. And so as we read that, it's easy to conclude that he means that Israel's going to finally get it right and be faithful to Yahweh without giving much thought to how that works out. 
And so our unexamined assumption tends to be that Israel will finally keep the terms of the covenant. But at this point, that's the Mosaic covenant. And from our place in the story, we know that righteousness does not come through the Mosaic covenant, through the law. All it can produce is condemnation. And so this brings me back to the detail that I said was easy to miss. Listen again to the beginning of Deuteronomy 30. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you. See, as I read that now, I see it implying that there's something that comes after their experience of the blessing and cursing produced by the law. The restoration that he goes on to describe in Deuteronomy 30 comes after that. And so he doesn't say it explicitly, but it leaves room for the fact that there's something that's going to come after the law. And now, here in Isaiah 55, 3-5, we find the promise of a new covenant. And as far as I know, this is the first mention of this new covenant. Now, a hundred years or so after Isaiah, Jeremiah is going to give more details about this new covenant. And we're going to find out that it's going to replace the Mosaic covenant. And it's ultimately going to be this new covenant, which Christ inaugurates through his death, through his blood. And that covenant is going to replace the Mosaic covenant. And so this is the covenant by which we now stand before God in grace because of the the death of Christ as the payment for our sins. That's the covenant that I think he's introducing here. But that's going to get unpacked later, and so we'll give it a lot of attention in a future episode. But those details are not the focus of this episode. For now, we need to remember that back in verse 3, Yahweh tells Judah that he will establish this covenant with them when they listen to him. It is this listening that's the focus of the passage as it moves forward, right? And so that's where we're going to give our attention to. As he continues, we pick up reading in Isaiah 55, 6. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Now, the way that this is stated implies that this is something of a limited time offer, that there's going to come a time when Yahweh may not be found when he will not be near. And indeed, we encountered a verse back in Amos who ministered about 60 to 70 years early. This is Amos 8, 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of Yahweh. And so God's not going to be, Yahweh's not going to be acceptable, uh, accessible. And historically, this famine, I think, lasted from the end of Malachi to the arrival of John the Baptist. And so the people of Judah should accept this invitation while it's available. He continues his thought, explaining what seeking Yahweh and calling on him is going to look like in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon him. So in returning to Yahweh, the people of Judah are promised that Yahweh will have compassion on them and pardon them. So what does this return to Yahweh look like? Well, pay close attention to how he phrases this, because it sets us up for what follows. He says, the wicked must forsake his way, and the unrighteous man must forsake his thoughts. In other words, he's going to have to abandon his independence and self-will. He can't go on living life in his own way, being guided by his own thoughts. And the why of this is explained as he continues, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so 
My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, let me just pause here and say for a lot of years, I'd read these two verses without really understanding the context. And as a result, I understood them to be saying that the things Yahweh thinks about and the way that he operates are so far beyond us that they are beyond even our comprehension. But that's not what he's saying. Remember verse 7, the wicked is to forsake his own way and the righteous, unrighteous man to forsake his own thoughts. And so that raises the question, if they forsake their own thoughts and their own ways, where are they going to go? They're going to forsake their own thoughts and ways in order to return to Yahweh. Why? Because Yahweh's thoughts are far better than the people of Judah's thoughts, and his ways are superior to theirs. But his thoughts and ways are not incomprehensible to them. He's revealed them to them in his law through his prophets. This is why he tells them in verses 2 to 3 to listen to him and incline their ear to him. He's revealed them to them and they need to listen to it. They need to be guided by his thoughts and follow the ways that he lays out because his ways and his thoughts are far superior to all their efforts to finding life on their own, far superior to spending their money for what is not bread and their wages for what does not satisfy. His ways are better than their ways. His thoughts are better than their thoughts, and so they need to listen to him so that they can follow his ways and his thoughts. And as he continues now, he's going to explain why his ways and thoughts are superior. He says in verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And so get the metaphor here. Just as surely as the rain causes plants to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for all who eat it, so Yahweh's word will accomplish his intention. See, this is how his ways are higher than their ways and his thoughts than their thoughts. His ways and his thoughts expressed through his word will accomplish his purpose. And again, this stands in stark contrast to their ways and their thoughts, in which they spend money for what is not bread and wages for what does not satisfy. This is why they should return to him and listen to him, so they can follow his ways, which are going to bring fulfillment. And he continues his explanation in the next verse, detailing exactly what this purpose is, right? And so this is not some vague, generic, mindless purpose. Um, there is a specific purpose that he has in mind that he's talking about, and we're going to break it down as we move through it. And this is in verse 12. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. Now, of course, we've talked enough by now that I think you probably know that the going out refers to their leaving the foreign lands where they've been scattered. And perhaps the most recent description of this that we've come across is found in the opening verses of the last servant song in Isaiah 52. And he says there, depart, depart, go out from there, talking about leaving the land where they've been in captivity, uh, the, these foreign lands, touch nothing unclean, go out in the midst of her or go out of the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of Yahweh, but you will not go out in haste, nor will you go out as fugitives. You're not going to have to leave in a hurry, and you're not going to have to sneak out. For Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, if you go back and look in Isaiah 52, these verses that we just read 
are followed by the final description of the work of the suffering servant, who, through his own sacrifice of himself, will redeem Israel and restore her to Yahweh. Right? And so they're going to be regathered from the nations to be restored with Yahweh. And that's going to happen through the work of the suffering servant. And so this is the purpose for which Yahweh sent forth his word. This is the purpose which will be fulfilled. And in it, the promises to Eve, to Abraham, and David are also going to be fulfilled. So all of Yahweh's purposes are going to be fulfilled. He sends forth his word and it accomplishes his purpose. Continuing on, he says, The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and the trees of the field will clap their hands at their restoration, their deliverance from these nations and their restoration. Now, I don't believe that this is just a metaphor for the celebration that's going to occur at this time. If you remember back to Isaiah 11, and there was the description of the reign of the shoot from the stem of Jesse. In other words, it's a description of the reign of the Messiah. And in describing this reign, Isaiah says in Isaiah eleven six, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in my all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the water covers the sea. See, I think what's being communicated here is that his reign is going to bring about a change in the way that creation works. The distinction between predator and prey is going to disappear. Hurt and destruction will be done away with. And we see the same thing as we come to the New Testament. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, this is going to occur when Christ returns. But listen to what he says. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. See, what I think is being said here is that creation, including the ground, has suffered under the curse since that first sin in the garden. And it's waiting for its release from the curse. It's waiting with eager anticipation. And so creation is literally going to rejoice when all of this is fulfilled because it's going to benefit from it. And he continues the description of the impact of this on creation in the next verse back in Isaiah 55. We're back in Isaiah 55 now, verse 13. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up, and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial to Yahweh for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. See, again, this describes another change in the substance of how creation works. And note that the thorns and thistles of the curse are going to be replaced with desirable trees. Creation is going to be restored under Christ's rule. And again, this is included here to show how the thoughts and ways of Yahweh are superior to the thoughts and ways of the people of Judah. Their ways lead to futility and emptiness. Yahweh's thoughts and ways lead to the restoration and blessing of Israel and the release of creation from the curse. He accomplishes all of his purposes. 
right? So that brings us to the end of chapter 55. And the next chapter begins not only a new chapter, but I think a new segment in the book. So we're going to leave that for the next episode and move into the making sense portion of this episode. And let me just say again, as we move into this, I'm moving much slower than I'd like to, than I intended to. But I think these are really critical developments. And and if we spend the time here to try to understand what's going on, they're going to benefit us later on and help us see uh, the, the story more clearly. And so as we think about what we've talked about today, this chapter is the culmination of the argument that began really back in Isaiah 40, where the people of Judah were urged to live in anticipation of the coming of Yahweh. As the chapters unfolded, we saw that in his coming, he would take the form of a servant who, through his suffering on their behalf, would restore the people of Israel to Yahweh. When that happens, the people of Israel are going to enjoy the blessings Yahweh has promised them as his people, as those who represent him to the nations. However, they're currently not representing him. They're pursuing life on their own terms, following their own way and their own thoughts. And what has that gotten them? Well, they're spending money for what is not bread and their wages for what does not satisfy. All their efforts are producing nothing but futility. And so Yahweh invites them to abandon their futile thoughts and ways and return to him. He will have compassion on them and pardon them without cost. And he will teach them his ways, ways which are not futile, but which accomplish inconceivable restoration and blessing. Now, here's what I think we need to see in all of this. Here's what I think we need to orient to. The question of this chapter, indeed, the question of chapters 40 through 55, is not whether or not Yahweh will restore Israel to himself and deliver all creation from the futility of the curse. That's presented as a given. His thoughts and his ways will accomplish all of that. The question is whether the people of Judah will abandon the futility of pursuing their own thoughts and their own ways and humble themselves before Yahweh and accept his offer and listen to him and allow him to teach them his ways, ways that lead to incomparable and inconceivable life and blessing. In other words, the question is not whether he will accomplish his purpose. He will. The question is whether or not they will humble themselves before him, learn from him, be a part of what he's doing, and enjoy all the bounty of the life that his ways bring, which is the same question that you and I face. It's the same question that every person in the story faces, right? Yahweh's going to accomplish his purpose, and the question is whether or not we will humble ourselves, zero out in the pursuit of our own thoughts and ways, submit to Him, and learn His ways so that we can live in them and find the life that's available and enjoy the unbelievable joy of all that is to come with the establishment of Christ's kingdom. And that's an important piece. This is not immediate gratification. That satisfaction, that promise is what happens when Yahweh sends the Messiah to establish His kingdom, restore Israel, and all of the blessings that He's promising are going to occur at that time. And so we can choose to be a part of that. We can choose to submit to Him, zero out, and live in His ways and His thoughts. Or we can continue in our own independence, frustrated by the futility and emptiness of following our own thoughts and our own ways. The choice is ours. We get to choose. In fact, we have to choose. 
Again, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share what God's teaching me through this, and I pray that you're finding it meaningful and uh, orienting to the story and making sense of your life. Any comments, questions, anything related to the podcast, garth at truequest.us is a dedicated email for that purpose. Uh, grateful to those of you who have rated the podcast, and if you haven't, you're able to, I appreciate that. And then finally, let me just mention that this podcast is a ministry of TrueQuest Outfitter Ministries. And if you're finding value in what we're doing here and would like to be a part of supporting this, you can do so at TrueQuest.us. There's a donate button on every page. We're grateful for those who make this possible. Grateful that God's using them in our lives to allow us to do this. And if you'd like to be a part of that, we'd welcome you. But we're also grateful if you're just finding benefit in it and enjoying it. Until next time, I pray that God's blessings are upon you. Thank you.